0: Let me pray, and we'll get into the word. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this man, Jesus, who came. Thank you for the, the topic, the reality, the notion, the command, the ethic of forgiveness we've been working through for four weeks now. Uh, thank you for not doing something. I'll say it this way. Father, thank you for not asking us to do something you haven't done yourself. Give me grace now as I preach about your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So for four weeks, we've been talking about forgiveness. And it's been about that response. And I've talked to many of you, but forgiveness is hard, right? Because who does forgiveness really start with, biblically, when Jesus talks about it? If someone's offended me, that's their sin. They've sinned before God. They've sinned against me. But forgiveness in that situation starts with my heart. And that's where Jesus is different. Jesus said things like, if you're at church and you remember there's a disagreement between you and someone, leave your check in the pew, literally, and go find that person and work on forgiveness. That's usually different than most religions, right? A lot of religions say, give more to that institution and you will, and he and she will be forgiven. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, leave it and go deal with it. So we're going to take a little break from forgiveness because I think it's worn on my heart enough. And I want to kind of redirect this for one Sunday before we get to Father's Day. Then we'll continue back in James through the summer. I talk a lot about Jesus. And I want to kind of redirect. I know we know Jesus. But I want to put him on display again. I want to do it every Sunday. But I want to tell you a little story to show us all who is asking us to live a life of forgiveness. Like if Dave, if Pastor Dave is asking Nancy to live a life of forgiveness, Nancy respects me so She's kind. But mostly just say, that's just Pastor Dave. But this Jesus came, and he said, I came from heaven. I came to usher in my father's kingdom this new way, this alternative way. I came to reorient every part of your thinking, and I'm asking you to walk in peace and forgiveness even in the midst of a Roman empire, which basically has you enslaved. So let's look at Jesus this one who is saying these things. We look at him every week. Don't, if, you're, if you're new, we do, it's not like we don't look at Jesus, but we've been teaching about what he said about forgiveness for four weeks, and we'll look at one of my favorite stories. Hopefully, it's somewhat familiar. If not, we'll go through it. Jesus in this kingdom has proclaimed from the new mountain, the Mount of Beatitudes, the fulfillment of the law, and it's based on humility, grace, and forgiveness. The gospel writer John, John the Revelator, this disciple who became an apostle, he wrote kind of a thematic gospel that has a lot of big word, Christology, taught us a lot about Jesus. And in his gospel, he shows us seven signs. At the end of his gospel, he says a couple things. He says, if I would have written everything Jesus did while here on earth, no book could contain it. But then he also said, John 20, 31, look it up later so the pastor's not crazy, I wrote these things down as signs so you who are reading might believe and receive eternal what? Life. That's John's motive, message. John wasn't in a trance. He had a psyche and a way of thinking and a way of writing. That's what he's trying to do. And the last of his great signs, seven of them we see in this gospel, has to deal with this man named Lazarus. And many of you know the story. If you don't know the story, I'll give it away in a sports analogy. The Cavaliers right now are Lazarus. They are dead. They are in the tomb, and it's starting to stink. Now, if Jesus shows up, not really, in this series, and next Sunday and Father's Day, if they pull off their miraculous, they will be resurrected, right? They were kind of Lazarus last year. If anyone's from Cleveland, I'll give you your props. But right now, they're gone but the story is familiar, but let's dive in and see what it might say to us. Now we have to remember John's understanding of who Jesus is while living, was for us, but is, because he's alive, the human Jesus. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse two, he, the Word, was in the beginning with God. Verse three, speaking of the Word, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's kind of weird. Basically, everything's from this word. The word sustains. And so, in this prologue of John's gospel, we should be intrigued. Verse 14, and the word, the one who made everything, the word, the one who holds everything together, the one who is God, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the only son from the father. And this is my favorite part of John's gospel. Read it. Full of what? Not law and wrath. Because in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, in the old law, grace was disguised at times. I go back to it, but the Levites killed 3,000 people for worshiping a golden calf when Moses came down. That's law and wrath. Jesus came full of grace and truth. God came full of grace and truth. Okay? In verse 15, John, the one who was writing the revelator, the the apostle, the disciple, the the author. I'm sorry, no, 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 I messed up there. Hang on. John is John the Baptist. I get confused too. John the Baptist, verse 15, JTB. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I have said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And I I taught a bit on this on our Christmas Eve service, but look at verse 18 in John 1. That should be troubling if you know your Old Testament. John is not disputing the encounters God had with Elijah or Moses or Isaiah or others' visions, but John, the writer of this gospel, the author, is simply saying, This is the first time God has chosen to fully reveal himself to human beings in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's who has been teaching us about forgiveness. This is the God-man who has come to reveal all that he is, to reveal this kingdom. And now we'll jump ahead a few chapters. 10, actually, if you have a Bible. John 11. At this point in John 11... Jesus has done six other signs in John's gospel, many wonderful things, and there's a fierce opposition against him. Jesus is healing people. He's teaching. He's providing buffets for large crowds. He's showing up in populated areas and performing wonderful teaching. And there's an opposition against him. There's a lot of people who don't, believe in the notion of evil in our world? But if we just read the historical account of this man Jesus, I'll take away the miracles. Take them away if you don't want to believe in them. Okay, I'll take I'll, I'll go there. Just what he taught should have not got him killed. But human beings, for many reasons, saw him as a supreme threat and there were factions And people positioning themselves to end this man's life. Like literally, assassination time. So Jesus in John 11, chronologically, is off in the wilderness, kind of hiding out. All over Matthew, all over John, we see phrases like, Jesus didn't fully do this because his time had not what? Yet come. So Jesus and his father are working out this redemptive, salvific story. And right now, because in John 8... He forgives a woman who was caught in adultery. Ladies, hello. Men, hello. He forgives a woman who was caught in adultery, and what do the chief priests want to do? Kill him. Jesus forgives, and they want to kill him. They want to kill him for a few reasons. Only God himself has the right to what? Forgive. So Jesus claims to be God. He then says, before Abraham was, I am, and that's when they pick up stones and say, let's go, partner, and he escapes. He escapes. And now, in this part, he's teaching in small areas, kind of out in the wilderness, away from Judea. Jesus would go to Jerusalem often during Passover and different religious festivals. It's the big city kind of on the hill. And there were no Airbnbs back then, right? There were no Ramada Inns. So Jesus had friends. Never think about that. Jesus loved everybody. Yes, but friendship and kinship was different with a few families. One of Jesus' friends and one of the places scholars believe that he stayed was in and around Bethany with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Bethany was about 1.9 miles from Jerusalem, a good, you know, half an hour, 40 minute walk. It was kind of on a hill. It was, it's beautiful, I've, I've heard. Maybe we'll get there one day, a church trip to the Holy Land. I see some eyes smile, so we'll talk about that later. Next year, right? Next year. Maybe five years. So Jesus would go and stay. He would sleep. Do you have people in your life that when you show up to their house, no matter how long it's been, you can be yourself? And you can take off the glasses and uniforms we wear as American, Western people or whatever we are, and we can just go, and what abounds in the room is a genuineness, a realness, grace, hospitality, and humility. That's what friendship, deep friendship, kinship is. That's where we're going as a church, slowly, right? Because we get there, and this will be a suburb of heaven. People will see the difference, and they do. So that, that's the family in Jesus' relationship. They're more than just, I believe in Jesus. They're his friends. And in this story, Jesus is hiding out, waiting for his time doing his ministry and a messenger comes John 11:1 Now a certain man was ill Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill So the sisters, verse 3, sent a messenger to him. They're caring for Lazarus. There's a lot of debate what overcame him. Who knows? He is on death's door. Many of you have walked with loved ones through illness that led to death, and you know what's going on. And they send a messenger to go talk to Jesus. He's on the outskirts. And all he says recorded, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Think of one of your friends, real good friends. You get a text. He or she has a day or two. What is your natural response as a good friend? Check the flight schedule. I'll charge it. We'll pay for it later. Whatever we got to do. We'll call. We'll call some people. We'll get moving, right? Jesus is a good friend. He is the best friend. Jesus is a good man. He is God. Next verse. But Jesus heard it and said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Remember that. Remember that. Every miracle recorded in Scripture has a deeper, maybe unsun meaning in John wraps it up in the beginning of John 11. All the things that the Lord does, whether small or big, are for his glory and that he might be glorified. And we'll talk about that. That's a big kind of confusing thing sometimes. And that's what Jesus is up to. Next verse. We can't, John does not want us to, this is the setup, I'll say it that way. We'll get to the next verse and we'll go. Huh? John wants to reiterate Jesus' love for his friends. Because here's the next verse. Uh Uh-oh. I taught some of this three years ago at Hope, so it might be familiar, right? Go back a verse, because John wanted us to remember that Jesus what? Loved. (laughs) But then 6 says... Jesus loved them, so he hung out another two days. And obviously, what's going to happen? Lazarus dies. So that's interesting. The one who, for the last four weeks and really longer, has been teaching us about the kingdom, the one who has taught us to live in this path of forgiveness and peace, the one who loves Lazarus probably like a brother, who loves Mary and Martha probably like sisters, a deep kinship, hears of this great, Disturbing news, and he says, thank you for the message. Pastor Dave is on death's door, Timmy. You get the text. He's going to die. You know what Timmy responds? Okay, send. (laughs) That's where we're at. Or even better, just K, capital K, you get that text? K, send. And we start passing the phone But go back to a couple verses. This illness does not lead to death. It is for God's pronouncement of his glory, okay? So we got to kind of work through this. And who is this man? And remember, the underpinnings of the sermon is, this is the man who's calling us to peace and forgiveness. I just want to remind us who's doing that. And I hope our hearts are swayed and wooed in the next few minutes and we get a... Leave here going, okay. Jesus goes on the next few verses and he basically says to his disciples, we're going back. Why don't we go to verse seven, you got it? Let's go back. And just so you know, the passage is not crazy. Look at verse eight. I told you, verse eight before we read it. The disciples said to him, rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Why did a messenger have to come? Because there is a violent opposition brewing against Jesus. That's important. Next verse. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Jesus basically says, no one's going to harm me until my time is come. There is still light in the day. My time has not come unto death yet. We're going back, okay? One more verse. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And this is, what, this is kind of good, 11. Jesus is kind of funny. After saying these things, what does he say? Let's go to Laz's home and let's go wake him up. And we don't have time, but they go on to say, Well, if he's just asleep, he's going to recover. Why are we going back into harm's way? When Mary and Martha hear that Jesus is coming, they run out to him, and they say simply, one at a time, Lord, if you had been here, I wouldn't be going through this personal tragedy. Has anybody ever cried that out to God, maybe in the subconscious? Lord, where are you? You told me you would never leave me or forsake me. You said your promises are true. You said you would walk with me every step of the way. Where are you? And that's what they're doing. These two sister-like figures to Jesus, whose brother has passed at this point when Jesus shows up, where were you, Lord? Remember back to the verse, this sickness does not lead to death. It's rather for God's fame And belief, that's what John is communicating. These signs are given so we might believe. Jesus is moved. A younger man has died. He died quickly and suddenly, apparently. It is a tragic and heart-breaking scene. His friends are weeping I don't think it was the weeping my three-year-old does when she doesn't get her way. I don't think it was the crocodile tears and the, (laughs) okay, daddy. I think it was gut-wrenching, weeping, guttural, visceral, because not because Lazarus has died, but because Jesus didn't show up for two days. That's why I think... The weeping and the sorrow is even ramped up a notch. The frustration is overwhelming. Where were you? This is the Jesus that we've learned about that we worship that is asking us to walk in forgiveness as we've been forgiven. And this is how he's weaving his kingdom into his friend's story to show us about God. Jesus is so moved Can you guys go to a 33? Sorry, I don't have it on there. 11.33. The one Russ read. Jesus is so moved that he is greatly troubled and actually the shortest verse in the Bible is recorded in John 11. Anybody know what it is? Jesus weeps over this. The one who paid For my sin and offers forgiveness to all has come to earth, the word. He holds everything together. No one's ever seen God until Jesus showed up the way God has fully revealed himself to be. He's not a robot. But what I want us to see here is Jesus is distressed two times in this passage. He shows his humanity. And the person who asked me to walk in forgiveness and love is not a robot from heaven. He's the God-man who says, come and live as I have and believe in me. That, to me as a human, is darn comforting. I can identify with that. I can identify with some of the other things I know who Jesus is, right? But that, I can identify with. So deeply moved and deeply troubled and knowing that him and his father are going to show off for us in a good way, he simply says, where's Lazarus? Where is he? And he's kind of in a little cave with a stone and it was ceremonial. It's been four days. Long time, right? In the ancient Near East, in a hot and arid climate, what happened to bodies after a Probably a day and a half. Gross. Let's just right? be honest. And he goes up to this cave, and there's probably a crowd now. And Jesus prays and thanks his father and says, Let's do this. And, and he cries out, uh, Move the stone away. And that's when the sisters go, Lord, we've been through enough. If I showed up to a funeral four days late, and it was a tragic event, and uh, I said, take me to the cemetery, and the family's there, and the family's really been through it, and I told the uh, cemetery worker, get the backhoe, take up the grave, the family would probably say, thank you for coming, have a nice day. And Mary even says, Lord, it's going to stink in there. Like, what are you doing? Don't bring further pain and embarrassment to us at this point. Back to earlier verse. This sickness does not lead to what? Death. It is for the glory of God. And according to John's mind, these miracles are given so people will believe. You guys know the story. They move away the stone. And what does Jesus say? And a loud voice, we're told... Lazarus, come out. And you will know what happens. Whether we believe, or this is a fictitious fable that has a feel-good ending, that's where your heart and my heart come into play. But John, according to his own mind and psyche, has written these things down so we might believe, and upon our belief, upon our confession, upon our repenting from the way we're living and turning to God we would receive by grace faith and then walk in the statutes of Jesus and be baptized amen and partake in communion amen and hopefully gather with some christians who love Jesus and here's the funny part we can think different politically it's okay <gasps> we can't think different about this man though and hear me it's not it's not that we can't have some doubts You know who doubts regularly? Your pastor. Maybe you won't come back to church next Sunday. But in the grace of Jesus, when we open his word, when I pray to him, by his spirit, he comes alongside and soothes my doubts and grows my faith, which started off as a tiny, tiny mustard seed given by him. And hopefully now it's sprouting out of some soil, and maybe one day it'll be like our oak tree by God's grace. That's a beautiful oak tree, by the way. So Jesus shows up and does this. If you weren't catching on, this is a story of glory and hope. It's a story of grace and redemption. It's a story about this man who claimed to be the son of God working and loving and positioning things so his friends, I know the scriptures teach, and I'll tell you, would believe in a new and fresh and deeper way. The human heart is deceptive, though. You guys can jump back up. John eleven forty seven. I was gonna do it before, but I said jump up to them. After this, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's the attitude and that's the reason why Jesus was on the hideout and needed a messenger. He needed a text message to come to Bethany. Because even after raising Lazarus, the men in charge of the Jewish religion and the Jewish political system at that point said, he's gone overboard. Like, I get water to wine, I get healing like a lame person, I get cleansing a leper, but he's raising people from the dead. Like, people were there. People saw Lazarus come out in his grave clothes, and Jesus said, take those off him. They are not, that's for dead men. And now Lazarus is walking around. His blood pressure is 120 over 68. His heart rate is 68. He has no fever and we got a problem. That's what they say. We got to stop this guy. What was the reason? It was part of God's providential plan, yes. But in human terms, it was political. It was for politic and power. It's right there. If this guy gets too many people believing him. There's going to be a zealous, what? Rise up and the Romans will come. And what did Romans do back then if there was an uprising? Do you want it to be over in three days or four days, Caesar? Because we'll do either, whatever you want. And they were brutal. And the Jewish leaders for self-preservation said, we got to get rid of this guy. This isn't good for anybody. It's not good for our nation or our Council, the Sanhedrin and different things, the Pharisaical council. It's better that he goes than all of us go. And so that's the climate. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew what man was. John 2, the end of verse, chapter 2. Look at that, maybe high 20s, 30s, right after he turns water into wine. Jesus is ushering in His kingdom, it's for God's glory, it's founded on grace and forgiveness. He's calling people to walk in that way. And he knows soon that there will be an uprising and the Romans will crush Jerusalem. It happened in 8070. Go Google it, it was brutal. A couple more verses and we'll close this up. Next one. But one of them, Caiaphas, we know him around Easter usually who was high priest that year, said to them, you guys don't know what you're talking about. As high priest, he was probably a part of a very special family. He was probably older and wiser and he served for about a year. That's what the high priest did. Next one. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And that's the prophecy given by the high priest and he's trying to preserve himself and he's actually speaking from heaven. How do I know? Next verse. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. I only read that to show us the attitude towards Jesus, even when he was performing miracles, but the sovereignty and goodness of our heavenly father who orchestrated things together so the people of their own volitional will could want to... Kill Jesus. Who would want to kill Jesus? the man I just read about? I don't want to pronounce judgment or place judgment because I'm too old for that. I used to do that in my 20s. If you knew me in my 20s, I'm sorry. <laughs> they knew me. Some other people knew. I apologize. Who would want to kill Jesus? Who would want to kill a man who was ushering in the kingdom? who is proclaiming the things, the good things of God, who is proclaiming salvation and forgiveness is offered to all who will believe, who is going around teaching children and saying, don't stumble these, because if you stumble these, then we have a real problem. Somebody who's been spiritually dead for four days or more wants to kill Jesus. That's the wrap-up of the Lazarus account. Somebody who... And don't think of other people. That's what we do in church, right? When I pronounce it, I'm like, yeah, they, I know that person. Think of our own hearts. Before God's grace come upon me, and I was undone, and I was in the tomb, metaphorically, and the stone was rolled away, and I was involved in my own sin and my own selfishness, I probably would have said, get rid of Jesus. I want to have my position here. There are eternal consequences for our sin. Christ in grace has paid for those, for all who believe. There are natural consequences for our sin. And one of the natural consequences for us refusing the grace of God is to stay buried in a tomb with a stone in our own decay and our own muck and mire. But by the grace of God and the mercy of Christ, Jesus from Calvary proclaimed to all Alex, come out. Alex is back there. Patricia, come out. Reza, come out. Dave, come out. And that is the gospel call, church. When we were dead in our transgressions, Christ went to the cross in grace and mercy, offered forgiveness. What was his dying prayer, church? We're gonna memorize it, put it on our epitaph. Father, forgive them. Answer that call, church. Receive forgiveness. If you've done that, praise God. Walk in that newness every day. As a forgiven being, we are called to be salt and light, to go proclaim the gospel with word and deed. James tells us, we'll get there back there in a couple of weeks. What, remember what James says? You say, I will show you my faith by my mouth. And James says, I'll show you my faith by my life. There's a balance there. And that's this beautiful story summed up. The one who's asking you and I to live in this way is the one who waited a couple days to show God's supreme glory, to place belief in his people even deeper. And he still calls people like Lazarus spiritually out of the tomb every day and that's what we pray for, right? They did prophesy though, right? What did Jesus do? His life ended up dying for God's nation. God's people, and that's our God. Why don't we stand real quick? We'll be done. It's good to see everybody. I hope we learned something about this man named Jesus. If you see Jay and the boys, give him a big hug and say, well done. Awesome day for them. Um, Your housekeeping stuff is in your bulletin, and let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and forgiveness. As we go, may we be people who see this man who's come as more than uh, simply a prophet or a rabbi, but as Lord and as one who has instructed us to walk in this new way, this kingdom way. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.